Goldman's position is that this didn't happen anything like the way the New York Times reported it. And, of course, uh, the New York Times is sticking with his story. So there you have it. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, August 17th. Today, I'm joined by Bill Cohan to talk about embattled Goldman Sachs CEO, David Solomon, who has been the subject of not one, but two splashy and negative profiles in the press lately, raising questions about his future at the firm. Bill is here to sort through the anonymous gripes, separate fact from fiction, and give us a read on whether Solomon will actually leave the bank in the coming months or years. And later, Julia Yaffe swings by to discuss Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin's shifting red lines in Ukraine. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome to the Powers That Be, everybody. Happy Thursday. I am still out in Des Moines, Iowa, taking a little breather from the state fair uh, in my air-conditioned hotel room uh, after eating three deep fried Oreos, uh, a giant lemonade, one corn dog, a bite of a fried chicken sandwich with bacon on a glazed donut. Uh, So of course I had to come back to my hotel and lie down for a bit before talking to Bill Cohan for today's podcast. Bill, does any of that sound appetizing to you? Uh, uh, Not to me, Peter, Um, you know, (laughs) unless you also are having a coronary, uh, along with it uh no 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 no, uh, no. but i'm impressed that you're out there at the state fair yeah yeah uh, i have some good stuff to talk about and write about for puck about what republicans are saying about whether there's actually some room for a candidate other than donald trump but uh i'm also well, filming be- my snapchat show so i had to eat the junk mm. food on camera so it was partly a bit Ooh. and i will be spending a lot of time on my peloton when i get back to los angeles the knives are out it sounds like for David Solomon, the Goldman CEO, embattled Goldman CEO, as Bill says in his latest piece, The Judgment of Solomon. Bill, are these steak knives? Are these butter knives that are out for David? Uh, because there are, he's getting some bad press. But you know, I'm reading your piece, and you know, at the end, you know, you talk to a senior Goldman executive who basically says there's a 55, 45% chance 
He's at Goldman by the end of the year, which you say isn't good. You say the odds are probably better. But just to give listeners some backstory here, why are his critics getting louder, especially lately? Yeah, well, this has been going on now uh, for most of this year, Peter. Just as I say, just when you think it's sort of dying down, there are, uh, you know, there had been a round of complaints that it surfaced in the press and it and it sort of dies down. You'd think kind of in the doldrums of August when most people are on vacation at Goldman Sachs or many people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it would die down. But, you know, for some reason last Friday, there were two barrels pointed at him in, in the New York Times and in the New York Magazine. You know, I think, you know, I, I'm very highly tuned to this situation, uh, given that I, you know, r- wrote a book about the firm and competed against it for, you know, close to 20 years. I know, obviously, a lot of uh, people there. I know David quite well. You know, there's a lot of smoke, and usually when there's a lot of smoke, there's some fire, too. I think there's a little bit of fire, but I think that the board is firmly behind David, Mm -hmm. because I think, of course, what are they most concerned about? They're concerned about financial performance and stock price performance, and the stock price has done pretty well under David. 2021 was an exceptional year. 2022 was not so great, and the second quarter of 23 was not great, but they also threw a lot of stuff in the kitchen sink to wash it away, and maybe, you know, we'll see what the third quarter is going to be like. So I don't know whether it's a a steak knife or a butter knife. It might be like a mumbly peg, uh, (laughs) Peter. That's what I'm betting on. Mumbly peg. Okay. So the New York Times, as part of their piece about David, a.k.a. DJ D. Saul, has an anecdote uh, that involves uh, Solomon's predecessor, Lloyd Blankfein, who, according to the Times, was very cranky about uh, (laughs) Solomon's leadership. He'd lost a lot of money when the markets went down and sort of called to complain and also hint, suggest, uh, say that he would come back and help the firm fix its ways it sounds like Goldman is denying that the, that conversation was as hmm, sharp as it was characterized uh, in the Times. Yeah, uh, Goldman is basically saying, no, no, good, good try. This didn't happen anything like the way you described it. Did they talk? I mean, was, mm-hmm. I mean, so what happened was that in June, well, back in February, the, the Goldman's, you know, partners, whatever, uh, executives had a retreat down in Miami. Uh, and at the bar one day or one night, you know, uh, Lloyd was sort of overheard questioning some of the things that David had done. I'm not even exactly sure why Lloyd was at this event, but he was yeah, there. That and so to me too. that then got reported in June in the Wall Street Journal. So then after that got reported in the Wall Street Journal in June, Lloyd called David, like the day after, and then you know offered to be helpful, said he was sorry that it got reported that way or in the journal. And, you know, said, you know, is there anything I can do to be helpful? Do you want to have like a town hall together or do you want to do like a round table together? (laughs) You know, and and that was, uh, you know, only David and Lloyd were on the call. And then David came back in and reported to Tony Fratto and John F.W. Rogers, the Goldman consigliere, who were in a meeting with him that, you know, this is what Lloyd proposed. Look, Goldman's position is that this didn't happen anything like the way the New York Times reported it. And, of course, uh, the New York Times is sticking with its story. So there you have it. 
Uh, and we should say that Tony Fratto, former George W. Bush spokesman, longtime communication strategist, extreme homer for the city of Pittsburgh, uh, has been brought in to help with communications uh, at Goldman. To lead so, the communications effort at Goldman now, yes. There you go. On so, staff. you know, yeah. his pushback against the New York Times story is notable. And so it was his pushback and David's pushback by extension against that New York Magazine piece you mentioned. And I just pulled it up here in my browser. The headline of this piece, is David Solomon too big a jerk to run Goldman Sachs inside a banking mutiny, went the subhead. The most damaging thing in here, apparently, according to your piece, was this anecdote that the reporter seems to have sourced from Hamilton College, which is Solomon's alma mater. According to the students, their interaction with him was pretty negative. They wrote a letter to the college newspaper saying that he was racist and sexist and said, you guys are probably all on financial aid. And one student left the encounter in tears, (laughs) according to uh, the New York Magazine account. This story, like you said, includes a lot of other previous sort of gripes about Solomon, but they push back pretty hard on this, it sounds like as well. Yeah, I think they uh, told the New York Magazine reporter that it, you know, it didn't really happen the way she described it, although she was obviously quoting a letter the students had written to the Hamilton newspaper and then mm-hmm. also said that she had received from the students their contemporaneous notes of the encounter with David. So they told New York Magazine it didn't happen that way. Uh, what Tony told me uh, was that essentially uh, David uh, is chairman of the board of Hamilton College and you know, a loyal alum loves the school very much and would never uh, do anything to hurt or, or offend uh, or or upset uh, you know the students of the college so mm-hmm. again i mean that's sort of a non a little bit of a non denial denial uh, it's sort of hard to refute the letter and that was in black and white you know the idea that the contemporaneous notes were also shared is somewhat hard to refute as well I don't know. Maybe it was a tonal thing. Uh, maybe, da- you know, David is a hard charging guy. I mean, let's face it. He's mm-hmm. uh, a very big personality. He's very big presence. He's a man of, you know, authority, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, uh, the chairman of the board of Hamilton uh, College. Who knows? Maybe um, these students were just sort of offended by his whole, you know, attitude and demeanor. Who knows? So, how much of this bad press, bottom line, jeopardizes his standing with the board as CEO, uh, because as you mentioned, Goldman is a rough and tumble place generally. He's a tough guy, but maybe he's exactly the person that they need there. Well, I mean, he wouldn't have become CEO as one Goldman historian. My research on Goldman has led me to conclude that, you know what, Goldman Sachs is very good at finding the person to lead the firm that they need at any particular moment in time. Uh, David uh, is an aggressive guy. He's a very commercial guy. Uh, He's very competitive, extremely competitive. You know, one of the points I made in the piece is that he used to be very open or much more open with the press, uh, Mm -hmm. much more open with me and very helpful with me on various books and other things I've written, including about him. But lately, I would say in the last few years, he's really closed himself off to a large degree from the media. And he's put various journalists in penalty boxes 
and I think that some of that uh, is now coming back to bite him a little bit. And I think if he, you know, opened himself back up again and was, uh, you know, if, if he viewed us, Peter, as clients, the press as, as no different than, mm-hmm. you know, Mark Zuckerberg or something, a client that he wants Goldman to do business with, I think he'd get a lot further and a lot of this bad press would begin to quiet down. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know why he hasn't done that. And uh, I would advise him to do that. And maybe he is again, I don't know for sure. But I think that, you know, if this continues, I keep thinking, you know, the, the, I was told he's getting you know, this 55-45 and, and, I, and I keep thinking it would be higher than that because I haven't heard any rumblings at the board level that anybody's, you know, given up on him yet. And there's certainly, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, there's been no statement of support for him, which I would have thought might be coming, sort of like there was for Bob Chapek in yeah. June of last year when they gave him a three-year extension after all the griping, and then, of course, in November, pulled the plug on him. So maybe they don't want to be put in that position, but I think that, you know, if I were advising David, uh, and I used to be an M&A guy, I would tell him, turn the charm offensive on with the media, it'll work. You heard it here first, DJ Saul get... Bill Cohan out of the penalty box. <laughs> you too, Tony. <laughs> Bill, thank you so much. I am going to uh, put on my running shoes and uh, see if I can burn off some of these calories. Thanks for doing it, man. Sure. Thank you, Peter. When we come back, Julia Yaffe is here to talk about what else? Ukraine. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Hello and welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Julia Yaffe. How are you? I'm good. Hi. Julia, I really wanted to have you on today to talk about something that has fascinated me for a while. And you wrote about this this week, which is how Washington and really all of us in the media 
are talking a lot less these days, it feels like, about the fear of escalation in Ukraine. I remember a year or so ago, it felt like we were constantly hearing both from conservative critics, but also from people on the left and in the administration, Mm -hmm. that we needed to be very careful about limiting our support to Ukraine, lest we piss off Putin and he pulls the nuclear button, he retaliates, he strikes into NATO, he escalates in some horrific way, maybe with a tactical nuke. You had reported at one point, actually, that officials were even talking about the fear of FSB agents carrying out assassinations across Europe in retaliation. But then, you know, we kind of kept increasing our support. We kept giving more weapons. Biden is ramping up aid. Meanwhile, the Ukrainians are striking deeper and deeper into Russia. And Putin doesn't really retaliate in the way that people in the West are fearing. I mean, he definitely ramps up his response within Ukraine, which is horrible. And we can talk about that. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But it does seem like that nuclear fear has abated. What, What are you hearing from people inside the administration about that? Okay, so first we have to define what kind of escalation we're talking about. And in terms of the Biden administration's thinking, they were worried about two kinds. The first is that Putin would attack a NATO member, thereby dragging in NATO into a direct fight with Russia and the U.S. into a direct military confrontation with Russia. That's one. Two is they were concerned that Putin would escalate in the nuclear direction, that he would use some kind of nuclear weapon if he was backed into a corner, whether it would be some kind of really big strike or a tactical nuclear weapon used on the battlefield in Ukraine. That was a big fear, especially because Putin came out and said it repeatedly, including on the eve of the invasion. He said, if you try to stop us, you will experience consequences the likes of which you have never seen in your history. And then he kept making that threat over the first year of the war. And in general, it's a good idea to um, listen to what world leaders say. It's uh, not always true, but it's important information. But over the last couple months, I've just been hearing less and less concern. And it particularly hit me when I was speaking to a senior State Department official about the drone strikes in Moscow. They keep coming, they keep coming, and then there's mysterious explosions where, you know, recently a military optics plant exploded in Moscow, just created a ton of damage in the neighborhood, killed a woman, injured a lot of people, and no attribution or no no responsibility taken, but everybody understands that this is probably coming from Ukraine. And I was asking this official, like, are you guys worried about this? You know, this seems like, you know, you guys weren't giving Ukraine attackums, you know, the long range missiles that could hit into Russia because they might hit into Russia and that might cause Putin to escalate either by drawing in NATO or by going nuclear. And the State Department official was like, well, you can kind of understand the Ukrainians for doing that. We've been very clear on with them, you know, not to use American-made systems. They've been pretty good about that. We've been very clear with the Russians that this is not our preferred technique. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Ukrainians are going to Ukrainian. And when I asked this official about specifically the threat of nuclear escalation, they said, you know, it's always there. We always think about it. But we think it's been overblown in the past. And I was like, whoa, that's kind of new. Yeah, that's definitely a huge change in policy. Right? It's something they're yeah. not expressing publicly. Although I do feel like we've seen this or we're sort of implied in the administration's posture in that they have been slowly acquiescing to providing 
military systems, military support that they did not give at the beginning of the war. They offer a little bit more and they kind of wait to see what happens. And it appears that the red line shifts back and Mm -hmm. they give a little bit more and Putin doesn't do anything. And every time the U.S. feels and the West feels a little bit more empowered to support Ukraine without that fear that Putin is going to drop a nuke on Brussels. It, It sort of feels like that's off the table. Yeah. Or maybe not off the table. I don't think it's ever off the table with Putin. But it seems like also based on apparently what I've been told that apparently based on the intelligence they're seeing, they're not seeing any movements uh, that would indicate that Putin is getting ready to do something like this. Occasionally, the threat of a tactical nuke being used in Ukraine floats up, but still it seems very low. The risk seems very low. And a lot of people attribute that to A, the way the Biden administration has managed it, and two, the fact that Xi Jinping, Putin's really only big backer and ally, came out first privately warned him several times against going this way, and then publicly came out and said, this is absolutely a no-go. And that was seen as very decisive. Yeah, I was going to ask you how much of Putin's reluctance to escalate or to threaten to escalate is due to the international sanctions regime, especially on oil, and especially the fear that China or India would cut Russia off entirely if Putin did something truly reprehensible like use a nuke. I mean, right now he is relying on a couple of countries around the world that are Mm -hmm. still buying oil. They still have trade relations with, with Russia. But surely he must know that there are certain lines that if he crosses them, Russia will be totally, completely alone. And that that would essentially be the end of his regime. I don't know if it would be the end of his regime, but it would be the the end of him having any kinds of allies other than maybe North Korea and Iran, which is, you know, for a leader who had aspirations of making Russia a great global power, whose opinion is considered, I mean, that was his like the first 20 years of his rule was we demand to be at the big boys table too. You have to ask our opinion, our permission to do big things on the world stage. But if he's isolated with a couple of rogue hermit states in his corner because everybody has said, you know what, fuck you, man. We warned you, you did it anyway, we're done. Then he's not much of a not much of a global player anymore. Again, I don't think this is totally off the table, but it seems like a bucket of cold water being thrown on him. And I wanted to go back to something you said earlier because I, of course, went in a totally different direction. (laughs) But you were talking about the red lines. And one of the people I spoke to for my article, Andrew Weiss, who is a a great kind of observer of Russia, and he runs the Russia program over at the Carnegie Endowment here in Washington. And he made a great point, which is that the Russians constantly mock Barack Obama for not backing up his threat of saying that, you know, if Assad uses chemical weapons in Syria, we will do something crazy, right? Like we will respond. And then Assad did that and Obama didn't respond. And it was seen as a great sign of weakness and the the Russians made great political hay out of it. But in fact, this is way more important. Like you've, you said you're going to use nuclear weapons and You keep saying you're going to do it, but you don't. And in fact, you allow the U.S. to keep kind of pushing your red line further and further across the field. I mean, that too is 
not great for somebody who wants to look very strong and like he can, you know, puff up his chest and scare everybody away. Julia, talk to me a little bit about how the Biden administration has been managing its own escalation in terms of offering more aid, allowing more military assistance. I assume there's sort of a fine line for the White House, too, because they don't want to look weak, but they also don't want to look reckless. Exactly. And that's a very fine line. And it's something that they have to keep adjusting in real time. And, you know, and the war has been dynamic, like the first phase of the war when Russia first invaded and was barreling down on Kiev, like that was, that was very different than the kind of war we're seeing now, which is basically this kind of World War One style stalemate or dynamic stalemate in the east and south of the country with what people refer to as the deep war, you know, Ukraine striking targets behind enemy lines, attacking the Russian capital, etc. Looks very different. It's about drones, it's about missile defenses, it's about mine clear like right. So the needs of Ukraine keep changing. And what it asks for also keep changing, except for the F-16 thing. And now it's like it was it was a no, then it was a maybe, now it looks delayed again. The attackums seem like they're gonna keep being a no, but anyway. Julia, last question for you. I'm curious what the Ukrainians take away from how the Biden administration has been sort of messaging around all of this. Obviously, they're not directly encouraging the Ukrainians to attack deeper into Russia. Maybe they're kind of quietly tut-tutting them behind the scenes. But publicly, at least, it seems like they're sort of tacitly allowing this by not threatening to pull their support. Is the message that the Ukrainians are taking away that this is okay? Like, let's keep going with this tactic. Let's make it hurt for the Russians. I think so. Basically, yeah. But basically, I think that in some ways, the Biden administration has also always left itself room and said, you know, this is their war. They want to fight it on their terms. They want to win it on their terms. And we're here to support them. At the same time, they've also said, please do not use the weapons we provide you to hit inside Russia. And Ukraine has developed a a pretty healthy and innovative domestic drone industry. And so I'm being told that all these things that are hitting inside Russia are not in any way using American weapons. Well, Julia, this has been fascinating. As always, thank you for coming on. We've got to leave it there. But uh, we'll see you back on here next time. All right. Talk soon. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.